Well, good morning again. Wow. That extra hour of sleep sure has you all sleepy still, eh? Well, good morning again. Uh, we are going to be in the book of Job today. See, I, I notice how I just ran over your potential lack of a response there that second time. That's, that's what we call, uh, you know, hedging something. I'm not quite sure what. I wasn't sure where I was going with that. You know, sometimes, like Pastor Ryan, the longer that I'm here, uh, when I just start talking, I'm not exactly sure what's going to come out next. So, um, and then I can get myself into trouble. So, and my wife isn't here today to, to do one of those things where she sends up the signal flare and waves her arms around like, just stop talking. She's not doing that today. Um, so, uh, but we are going to be in the book of Job today, and uh, I've got some sections of scripture that we'll be reading a little bit later, and they are not up on the screen. There is other scripture that's on the screen. So if you have a Bible with you, uh, you can flip open to Job chapter 1 in preparation for some of the early readings, and then we'll be in Job chapter 38 and 39, uh, towards uh, the middle-ish part uh, of service, if I don't happen to go off my notes too much. Um, and Job is a book that I really have had a joyful time going through over the course of this past week as I've been preparing for today. It's a book that takes place in the land of Uz, which is somewhere far away from Israel, and it's unique, the book of Job, in that all the characters in the book of Job are non-Israelites. And we don't know exactly when Job was written. We can make educated guesses. Uh, some of the more, you know, uh, accepted ones are somewhere in the 1000 to 2000 BC time frame. Big, large gap of time there. But there's no clear historical setting in the book of Job. And it's likely that this is intentional. And the reason that it's intentional is so that we don't get hung up on the details of the historicity. But instead, we can focus on the questions raised by Job's suffering. So Job is a book of poetry, and it's broken down into four main sections. There's a prologue, there's a statement and response time between Job and some friends, there's God's response to Job, which is primarily where we're going to park today, and there's an epilogue. And the beginning of the book of Job, it paints a picture of a man who is blameless, a man who is righteous, a man who honors God. And then the scene shifts. So God declares this about Job, and the scene shifts to God, and God is holding courts, and we read some pretty shocking words in Job chapter 1, verse 12. I think I have this one up on the screen. All right, you may test him, the Lord says to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan leaves the Lord pres Lord's presence and does exactly that. So what we see here, and, and we're going to kind of summarize this, and I'll read some scripture here, some excerpts from this to kind of paint the picture where we're at contextually. So Satan, the accuser, he challenges God, and he says that Job, and by extension, people who believe in God, they're only really truly righteous because they're rewarded by God. Job is only righteous because God rewards him. So Satan says, you know what, God? Let him suffer. Let Job suffer, and we'll see how really righteous this man is. We'll see, we'll see how really righteous he is. He might even curse you to your face, God. And God agrees to allow Satan to test Job, and Job suffers terribly in chapters 1 and 2. I want you to listen to some of these excerpts here, starting in Job chapter 1, verse 13. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabaeans raided us, 
They stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Job was a very wealthy man. He had a very, very good life. And he lived a very rich lifestyle. And while this messenger was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, it just keeps piling on here. Another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home. Suddenly, a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed and all your children are dead. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell down to the ground to worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin by blaming God. Anyway, the scene shifts then, and it comes back to God, who's holding court, and Satan, the accuser, comes again before God. And God says, did you notice my servant Job? What you said was going to happen didn't happen. He's blameless. He's righteous. He honors God. And Satan says, well, God, you know what? That's because he still has his health. I've taken you know, everything away from him, but he still has his health. Let me take away his health and he'll curse you to your face. And God says again, all right, you may test him. And we read this. Job scraped. So Satan left the Lord's presence and he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job replied, You talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in all this, Job said nothing wrong. And Job has some friends, and they hear about Job's suffering, and they come, and they are absolutely just floored by what it is that Job is experiencing. And I'm like reading this, okay, even this week. Now I'm familiar with the story of Job, but I'm reading this again and it's fresh. And I'm like, that just happened. Seriously? Wow. Like I'm, I'm drawn into the story now. And my natural assumption in reading those first two chapters of the book of Job is that this book is going to answer the big question, the why. Why does God allow good people to suffer? Why Job? Why this right now? But the interesting thing about the book of Job is that it does not answer that question. In fact, it doesn't even come close to answering that question. Last week, we were in John chapter 6, and we read a story about Jesus not only entering into the midst of his disciples' fear, but actually causing it. And Jesus, in that moment, he didn't explain himself to his disciples. He revealed himself to them. Stop fearing. The I am is here. Now, the book of Job, it doesn't offer an explanation, but it does offer something different. It offers us perspective. We don't like that sometimes. We crave explanation. We want the instant gratification of an answer to the ultimate question. Will everything be okay? 
We want to know the why of our heartache and our pain. I do. I know I do on a regular basis. I want that. But the book of Job, it doesn't offer us any form of an explanation as to why we suffer and experience hardship. What it does offer, though, is the tenderness and the gentleness of God's presence through his response. It's so cool. Where he says, I am with you in hardship. And my perspective, it's far greater than yours. So trust in me. Trust in who I have revealed myself to be. I am just. Which, by the way, the theme of the book of Job isn't suffering. It's justice. It doesn't answer the why of the question, will everything be okay? But it does answer the question as you read throughout the book of Job, is God just? And does God run the world according to the principles of justice? And, and we're not going to dive into all the theology of the book of Job today, okay? It's, it's just too big. It's, it's a lot of chapters long, all right? But this is just setting the stage right now. This is the prologue, if you will. And then we get into the meat of the book, following these first two chapters. Job is approached by his three friends, and each one of these friends represents the best from the different schools of thought that humanity has to offer about God and suffering and justice and the human condition. And for the next 34 chapters in this book, Job speaks and one of his friends responds to him and then Job responds to that friend and then another friend responds and then Job responds to that friend and on and on and on, back and forth in this discourse and dialogue that takes place through a total of three different cycles. And these three cycles focuses on three questions. Okay, the first question, is God just? The second question, does God run the universe on the strict principle of justice? And if so, how is Job's suffering to be explained? Now, human thinking, all right, as it pertains to justice and hardship, has some presuppositions. We've got some pretty big assumptions about how things work. Mainly that if we are wise or good or obedient, then we receive blessing. It's kind of like an if-then, all right? We naturally go here in our minds, right? If I am good, then I receive good. If I am not good, then I receive not good, right? If I'm foolish and evil, disaster, punishment, and ruin are my lot. That's how we think. That's how philosophy oftentimes presents the idea of justice in our world. But this line of thinking has a major flaw in Job's story because Job actually is innocent. He is blameless. He is righteous. He does honor God. He hasn't done anything wrong. God himself says that. He says it as blatant as you could possibly say it in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. We didn't read that. We have to ask ourselves the question, right? If, if Job's story doesn't fit this right there, where does that leave us? This human assumption that if we're good, then we receive good, or if we're bad, then we receive bad, it doesn't fit Job's story. And there's 34 chapters in this book where Job is on this extreme emotional roller coaster. All right, he is up and down, up and down, up and down. He's defending his innocence to his friends. And his friends are in turn, they're accusing him of sinning. They're accusing him of of having something in his life that's causing all of this suffering that he's experiencing. Because according to how we think about justice, that makes sense. Right? And Job is unable to reconcile the blamelessness of his own life with God's justice. So he starts to question God, Job does, in the midst of this 34 chapter roller coaster that he's on. And he actually accuses God of being both unfair and unjust and incompetent. 
And as soon as he does that, he's absolutely terrified at the implications. Job is. He, he kind of goes to an extreme, okay, multiple extremes throughout. This is a fascinating read if you get a chance to read through it. But he's terrified of the implications of the creator of the universe being anything less than perfect. Because he wants to hope. He needs hope in the justice of God. He needs to believe that God is who he said he is. Because if God isn't actually who he said he is and who he has portrayed himself to be, then we as humanity, we're in trouble. We are in major trouble. Now, Paul says it really well in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'm going to paraphrase here, okay? He basically says, if Jesus isn't who he said he was and didn't do what he said he was going to do, if he didn't do any of that, then we are still guilty and we are stuck in our sins. And amongst men here on this earth, we are to be most pitied. So Job is in the midst of this roller coaster and he takes his case directly to God. He shakes his fist at the I am and he demands an explanation. Why God? Why? Because he needed to believe in the God that he knew. Because he needed to know that God wasn't anything else than who he had portrayed himself to be. Because if God isn't, I can't say it enough, we are in serious trouble. But thank goodness he is who he says he is. And so we're in the midst of this 34 chapter uh, question or kind of statement and response time between Job and his three friends. And at this time in the story, a fourth character enters in to Job's story. His name is, is Elihu, and he spends six chapters speaking to Job. And I want to sum up his statements for you, okay? He says, God is just, essentially. He's saying God is just. And he says God does, in fact, run the world according to justice. And he says, you know what? When it comes to suffering, we might not always have all of the answers. Maybe we suffer because it's a warning for us to avoid future sin. Maybe we suffer because it helps to build character. Ultimately, we might not know the reason for our suffering. Okay? We just don't have the perspective that God does. All right? But one thing that I'm certain of, and he says, Job, you ought to pay attention to this. Don't accuse God. Don't accuse God. And Job has no answer for this six-chapter kind of dialogue that happens. At this point in the story, it's like all of human wisdom has been spent. The best, brightest of Near Eastern thought, they have nothing more to add to the mystery. And the why it remains it's there. The question is still present. We don't get the answers that we're looking for. But then God shows up. Then God shows up. He actually shows up in a whirlwind. And, and this same God who is accused by Job in his anger of being both unjust and incompetent, he shows up. And Job, he's on this extreme emotional roller coaster, right? And God hears Job. He shows up in a whirlwind and his response is so cool. It is so cool. He in no way points to any form of an explanation. He points to himself. And we're going to read this, his response here, in, in Job chapter 38 and 39. So if you've got your Bibles with you, you can flip open and, and follow along. The scripture is not up on the screen for these two chapters. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Starting in 
starting in chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundation? And who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb? And as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness? For I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores. I said, this far and no farther will you come. Here your proud waves must stop. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and cause the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to the night's wickedness? As the light approaches, the earth takes shape like clay pressed beneath a seal. It is robed in brilliant colors. The light disturbs the wicked and stops the arm that is raised in violence. Have you explored the springs from which the seas come? Have you explored their depths? Do you know where the gates of death are located? Have you seen the gates of utter gloom? Do you realize the extent of the earth? Tell me. Tell me about it if you know. Where does light come from and where does darkness go? Can you take each to its home? Do you know how to get there? But of course you know all this. For you were born before it was all created, and you are so very experienced. Have you visited the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of hail? I've reserved them as weapons for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war. Where's the path to the source of light? Where's the home to the east wind? Who created a channel for the torrents of rain? Who laid out the path for the lightning? Who makes the rain fall on barren land in a desert where no one lives? Who sends rain to satisfy the parched ground and make the tender grass spring up? Does the rain have a father? Who gives birth to the dew? Who is mother of the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens? For the water turns to ice as hard as rock, and the surface of the water freezes. Can you direct the movement of the stars? Blinding, binding the cluster to the Pleiades, or loosening the cords of Orion? Can you direct the constellations through the seasons, or guide the bear with her cubs across the heavens? Do you know the laws of the universe? Can you use them to regulate the earth? Can you shout to the clouds and make it rain? Can you make lightning appear and cause it to strike as you direct? Who gives intuition to the heart and instinct to the mind? Who is wise enough to count all the clouds? Who can tilt the water jars of heaven when the parched ground is dry and the soil is hardened into clods? Can you stalk prey for a lioness, satisfy the young lion's appetites as they lie in their dens or crouch in the thicket? Who provides food for the ravens when their young cry out to God and wander about in hunger? Do you know when the wild goats give birth? Have you watched as deer are born in the wild? Do you know how many months they carry their young? 
Are you aware of the time of their delivery? They crouch down to give birth to their young, deliver their offspring. Their young grow up in open fields, then they leave home and never return. Who gives the wild donkey its freedom? Untie its ropes. I've placed it in the wilderness. Its home is the wasteland. It hates the noise of the city and has no driver to shout at it. The mountains are its pasture land, where it searches for every blade of grass. Will the wild ox consent to being tamed? Will it spend the night in your stall? Can you hitch a wild ox to a plow? Will it plow a field for you? Given its strength, can you even trust it? Can you leave and trust the ox to do your work? Can you rely on it to bring home your grain and deliver it to your threshing floor? The ostrich flaps her wings grandly, but they are no match for the feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on top of the earth, letting them be warmed in the dust. She doesn't worry that a foot might crush them or a wild animal might destroy them. She is harsh toward her young, as if they were not her own. She doesn't care if they die, for God has deprived her of wisdom. He has given her no understanding. But whenever she jumps up to run, she passes the swiftest horse with its rider. Have you given the horse its strength or clothed its neck with a flowing mane? Did you give it the ability to leap like a, lo- like a locust? Its majestic snorting is terrifying. It paws the earth and rejoices in its strength when it charges out to battle. It laughs at fear and is unafraid. It does not run from the sword. The arrows rattle against it and the spear and javelin flash. It paws the ground fiercely and rushes forward into battle when the ram's horn blows. It snorts at the sound of the horn. It senses the battle in the distance. It quivers at the captain's commands and the noise of battle. Is it your wisdom that makes the hawk soar and spread its wings toward the south? It is, is it at your command that the eagle rises to heights to make its nest? It lives on the cliffs, making its home on a distant, rocky crag. From there, it hunts its prey, keeping watch with piercing eyes. Its young gulped out blood, where there's a carcass, there you'll find it. There are some throughout history that have taken issue with God's response and handling of Job. They've accused God of parading his power and being void of all moral responsibility. There have been those who have called Job's treatment immoral by any human standards, and they accuse God and Satan of using the soul of Job in some type of divinely twisted game. I see something different when I read this text. I see a tenderness and a gentleness in God's response. You see, God is above any human concepts of morality and justice. The God of the book of Job is neither just nor unjust. He is God. He is God. And God does not meaninglessly allow Job to be tormented. It's quite the opposite In fact, God is honoring Job by putting his full confidence in the genuineness of Job's faith, which Satan has challenged. And the New Testament echoes this. If you take a look at the words of the brother of Jesus, James, in James chapter 1, he says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. We read this, we're like, what? I don't like trouble, and I don't like trouble. Okay, I don't like trouble. 
But we are to consider it an opportunity for great joy, for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. And in the New Testament, we see one, uh, one, one story after another of the Apostle Paul as he is, suffers terribly for the advancement of the gospel. And he says this in Philippians chapter 1. He says, For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. And we look at that and we're like, what? But if there's any doubt, all right, if there's any question about this, we can look at and see the life of Jesus. Because in Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 4, we're told that Jesus has suffered everything that we have suffered and ever could possibly suffer. In fact, more than we ever will suffer because he not only took to the cross all the sins of the past, but he also took to the cross all the sins of the future. He joined us fully in our suffering. He emptied himself of his divinity and came down to be a man. And he took to the cross everything all sickness, all sin, all death, and there he defeated it. And we can't accuse God of not understanding what we're going through because we know that Jesus experienced it all. And through it all, he never sinned. You see, the message of the book of Job, it's not for our intellect, okay? It's not for our intellect. It's for our spirit. We don't get a theological explanation to the question, why? And quite frankly, God doesn't have to give us explanation. He doesn't owe us anything. He's God. And I find this so interesting about the book of Job, okay? Because the real reason why Job was tearing his clothes and he was dressing in sackcloth and ashes, right? We look at the book of Job and we're like, Job was suffering terribly. Therefore, Job is a mess. He's an absolute mess because of his suffering. But that's simply not the case. Job is a mess because of his suffering, but it's not the root of his anguish. It's not the real reason why he's so incredibly broken. For Job, it was the thought that he was separated from God that caused him the greatest anguish. Now, normally, we would assume that because we are suffering, God has removed his presence from us, that we're somehow cursed because if we hold to the a human assumption of divine justice, all right, which quite frankly is so limited, it's laughable. Like you read the, full, the fullness of God's response in chapter 38 through 41. I mean, the gulf in perspective that we have compared to God, it's absolutely enormous. And yet Christ came down to meet us right where we are at. I mean, there's, just, there's, this, there's this countercultural, counterworld type thing that is Christianity. And this assumption, though, of human justice says that Job somehow has been abandoned by God, all right? And Job is like being railed by his friends for about 30 chapters over this. They're like, Job, you have to be sinning. They're even making up sins that Job could have committed. All right, this is what, this is what human wisdom can bring. And we realize through the book of Job, though, that it's not as simple as that. It's not as simple of an if I am good, then I am blessed. If I am evil, then I am not blessed. All right, that's just not the case. And Job learns through God's response, starting in chapter 38, that he has not abandoned him. And it gradually dawns on Job that without knowing why he was suffering, he could face it so long as he was assured that God was his friend and he was not separated from his Savior. That is such a cool lesson. And look at the humility of Job that we see following God's response in chapter 38 and 39. After he gets done accusing God of being both unjust and incompetent, 
And God responds with a tenderness and a gentleness, a series of questions. Job just falls flat on his face. And the Lord says to Job, after this is starting in chapter 40, after we had read all of these questions where God's taking Job on this cosmic journey of marvel and wonder, God says, do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You are God's critic, but do you have the answers? And Job replies, he says, oh God, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? God, God, I'm just going to cover my mouth with my hand. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. This is the God of the universe we're talking about. Isaiah 6 tells us that in his presence, the high angels actually have to shield their faces or lest they be turned to ash. They can't look upon his presence, right? If I look down right now and I saw an ant railing at me about being unjust and incompetent, I'd be tempted to squish it. It's a good thing I'm not God, right? It's a very good thing I'm not God because God doesn't squish Job. God uses this as a teaching moment to show Job something amazing about his character. He could have ripped Job apart and humiliated him, but far from being crushed, Job was being made wonderfully aware of who God is in a universe full of joy and wonder. And that 38 and 39, chapters 38 and 39, God walks through all of creation with Job and he allows him to contemplate all of his natural marvels. And God is teaching Job to take him at his word without hardly any understanding of any of the mysteries of the universe, much less the reason why he was suffering. He's teaching him to trust God's point to himself. All right, and he says... Job, you might not see the bigger picture, but I do. Have I not proven myself trustworthy to you? And it's here we gain perspective. God has his eyes on all the universal details that we cannot possibly fathom. We don't have enough perspective to make claims about God's justice. Our view of the world and of existence, it's incredibly limited. And what God deals with in a world like ours, this world that's tainted with sin, it is extremely complex. And we don't have the perspective to be able to pass judgment on God's actions. In his commentary on the book of Job, Elmer Smick, he says this. He says, Job was simply overwhelmed with mysteries and paradoxes for which he had no answers. But in the midst of it all, he came to understand what was too good to be told, that God knows what he's doing in his universe. Job had many questions to put to God, as do we all. We do have questions, many, many questions. Instead of God trying to prove that it is an explainable world, however, he insisted that it is stranger than Job had ever imagined. Yet in all the strangeness, there is brightness and joy, and opposition to evil and wrong. And the reader comes to understand that in a world of such paradoxes, Job was suffering not because he was the worst of men, but because he was one of the best. Indeed, he was a grand type. In all his wounds, he prefigured the wounds of that one who was the only truly holy man to ever live, Christ the Lord. God answers Job's complaints by exposing his ignorance about who God really is. And in describing himself, he paints a picture of a being who is so vastly beyond what we are capable of understanding. And I love that he does this 
because it brings me to the point where I realize as I read the book of Job that I can't understand God apart from his help. And this is good news for us because he wants to help us understand who he is. He wants to help us understand. It's why he sent Jesus. The apostle Paul, he offers us a glimpse into this supernatural vision that we can have in our lives. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that the scriptures, this is what the scriptures mean when they say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. We just don't know. We can't imagine it, but we know it's going to be good because of the character that God has displayed. But it was to us that God revealed these things by his spirit. For his spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. No one can know a person's thoughts except that person's own spirit. And no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And we have received God's spirit, not the world's spirit. So we can know the wonderful things God has freely given us. When we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. Those who are spiritual can evaluate all things, but they themselves cannot be evaluated by others. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to teach him? But we understand these things, for we have the mind of Christ. When we talk about things like suffering and hardship and fear, our world looks at us Christians and they say, y'all are crazy. You got it backwards. What in the world are you thinking? And this is because mankind cannot even begin to understand God's kingdom rightly without the Holy Spirit. Without the illuminating grace of God, the world cannot accept the gospel. The world cannot accept that it is a privilege to suffer on behalf of Christ. It's not enjoyable, but it can be a privilege to suffer on behalf of Christ. The world cannot accept that God's answer to some of the biggest questions that we have isn't anything except further revelation of himself. And he continuously asks us to trust him through this. The world has a hard time accepting that even our greatest wisdom, our greatest genius, our most earnest struggling, all of these things cannot bring us into the thoughts and the mind of God. Isaiah said it well, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And those words are an invitation to us as believers, as followers of Christ, as those who are filled with the Holy Spirit. They're an invitation to enter into the fullness of the thoughts of God and the mind of Christ by what the Holy Spirit is revealing to us who believe. In the Christian and Missionary Alliance, we call this the deeper life. All right, and it's open to us. And I'm convinced that Job, upon being taken through this cosmic journey of God's infinitude, all right, he experienced this. And it's an open invitation to us too. A.B. Simpson, the founder of the Alliance, he once said that the Holy Spirit, he is waiting to lead us into all the fullness of the thoughts of God and the mind of Christ. One secret to this is an open ear. The other is an obedient life. He will speak to the soul that loves to listen. He will speak again to the life that hastens to obey. So let us hearken. 
Let us obey and let us launch out into the deep and explore the boundless continents of truth, the countless worlds of light, the vast and glorious expanses of heavenly vision which are waiting to open before the souls that dwell on high. For their eyes will see the king in his beauty and view a land that stretches afar. I'd like to invite the worship team up. Our God isn't a God of justice. God is justice. In the Old Testament, the terms justice and righteousness, they're indistinguishable from one another. Justice means uprightness or integrity or goodness. And is that not a description of the God that we serve? Uprightness, integrity, goodness. In a world that is imperfectly tainted by sin, we serve a God that is good. And he promises not only to make us new, but to make all things new. You know, these past two weeks, we've wrestled with the questions, aspects of the questions. Will everything be okay? Will everything be okay? And God's answer to these questions, it's not an explanation. It's not even necessarily an answer to the why. It's for the revelation of himself. He says, I am with you in fear. He says, I am with you in hardship. My presence does not depart from you. He says, trust in me. He says, I am enough. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that in the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the uncertainty, in the midst of the questions, Father God, that we would continue to lean into you, that we would continue to lean into your presence, that we would continue to look forward to the future glorification that's promised when you will usher in a kingdom that has no end and all darkness, all sin, all fear, all uncertainty, all hardship, all of that is going to be wiped away, Father God. And I pray in the meantime, Lord, that we would look upon you with adoration and marvel, and worship, for you are so far beyond anything that we can understand. So thank you, God, for providing your spirit so that we can relate to you. And I pray for those of us in this congregation right now who are suffering, who are hurting, who are dealing with fear and hardship and uncertainty. Father God, I pray that your spirit would comfort in these moments and that you would take them on a journey, Father God, further into your presence and that they would be able to experience what Job experienced, all of the wonder and the majesty, be able to marvel at everything that you are, everything that you've done, all that you have created, Lord God, and that we would be comforted by the knowledge that you know every single hair on our head and that Jesus came for me. And I pray that we would learn more about our Savior And that through it, Father God, we would be able to walk this life with all of its trials and tribulations with joy. Thank you, Father God, for sending Jesus to pave the way to restored relationship with you. We lift up the remainder of this time, this worship service this morning to you, Lord. May it be an acceptable offering. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.